When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Really excited for this week's show. Yes, me too. Excited to have my voice back. <laughs> it's, it's my laugh back. <laughs> I don't think you're there. You're like oh. you're like eighty five percent. Okay, all right, almost. <laughs> um, but it's coming. It, but, remarkable improvement. Thank you. Thank you. I feel great. Excited about the show. We have a great guest this week. That's right. We are talking with Susanna Black Roberts, who is a senior editor at Plow Quarterly, which is a great magazine that you should check out. If you liked last week's episode, uh, I have good news because we're, we're sort of continuing down this theme of sort of what's the relationship between religion and politics. You know, we talked about some of the more certainly more toxic traits of Christian nationalism last week and what that can look like. Um, this week, uh, we're getting a little bit more philosophical, like what are some of the philosophical underpinnings behind the U.S. form of government, the way that Christians understand the human person, how that fits into how the U.S sees the human person. So uh, all of that and more. And, and Susanna is like an expert guide on this. Um, this was a lot of what I did in college. I felt like I was joking with you that like this was like a ton of my like, I feel like I'm like junior year in philosophy class, yeah. like sort of debating some of these things. So um, if that sounds like it could be toxic to you, I recommend tuning out now. But if you do want to listen, we have a recommended drink that Susanna gave us, which is a Cosmopolitan. Yes. Uh, which is... We, I don't think we've had on the show before. I don't think we have, but no. I made it and it looks pretty. So <laughs> It's beautiful. We are cosmo cosmopolitan people in a yep. cosmopolitan city. Yeah. So it makes sense. All right. Cheers. Cheers. And in Signs of the Times this week, we are going to talk about Pope Francis's latest blockbuster interview with the Associated Press, as well as his comments on uh, homilies and how long they should be. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Listeners, when was the last time you challenged yourself to learn something new? Uh, I mentioned earlier in the pod that I studied philosophy in college, uh, philosophy and theology, but I really loved my philosophy classes, especially when they got into political philosophy. I just thought all of that stuff was so fun to debate and argue about and learn about. Admittedly, though, I, I don't revisit it that often. And so um, it's reason one of the reasons I love doing this podcast, but it's also why I've been loving this latest One Dream course that I've been getting into, which is the modern political tradition, Hobbes to Habermas. Yeah, I, I dabbled in a little philosophy in, in college, but I definitely needed uh, some of the fundamentals uh, presented to be anew. And I have also loved this course. It starts with origins and conflicts of modern politics. And our politics today are nothing if not conflicted. So thank you, Wondrium, for giving us the origins of all of that. For sure. And, you know, like all Wondrium courses, this is taught by someone who's at the top of their their field. Lawrence Cahoon uh, teaches at College of the Holy Cross, a good Jesuit school, so you know it's credible. And that's part for the course for Wondrium. Wondrium is an educational platform that allows us to learn about whatever we want, whenever we want. 
There's unlimited access to thousands of hours of audio and video content, courses, documentaries, tutorials, and more, so you can watch or listen completely ad-free on any device. We want you to challenge yourself to learn something new this year with Wondrium. To ring in 2023, Wondrium is offering our listeners a 23-day free trial, but it's only available if you sign up through our special URL. That's right. Go to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And we're going to start with the latest wide-ranging interview that Pope Francis gave to the Associated Press. It made many headlines, including Pope Francis saying that homosexuality should not be criminalized. He talked about gun violence in the United States, uh, his own failures in dealing with the sexual abuse crisis, um, along with his concerns about some of the uh, reforms that the church in Germany is considering in their own synodal process. But there's a lot in the interview. We can't get to it all. So we figured we'd we'd focus in on his comments uh, first on homosexuality and then on gun violence, especially uh, in wake of the news of two horrific mass shootings in California this past week. Yeah, I, I thought this was really striking, starting with the his comments on homosexuality and its criminalization worldwide. He really criticized them saying that they were A, unjust, that God loves all his children. And this is striking because we forget sometimes that the Pope is Pope of the entire Catholic Church, right? And so his comments on issues like this, right? They hit a certain way in the United States or Western Europe, but I, I imagine that this is going to cause quite a stir in countries where there's uh, a number of Catholics and there are laws on the books that Catholics support. Yeah. That- 67 countries worldwide is what the AP reported that have laws on the book that um, make it illegal to engage in homosexual activities. Right. And so I think these are really going to shake things up in these countries. We might say, OK, here in the United States, like, yeah, we it's, you know, we're past that. We have other issues and how we, you know, welcome LGBT people, but um, a lot of countries are really sort of still struggling with this issue of whether or not it's a crime and whether or not to punish it with, I mean, it's like punishable by the death penalty in some places. Mm-hmm. And so this is like a serious issue to the Pope that I thought these comments were striking. Yeah. And he he called out specifically bishops in the in these countries that have supported these laws criminalizing homosexuality, saying these bishops need to undergo a conversion and, and extend God's love to the LGBT community and LGBT Catholics. Um, there was a little confusion around his comments. Um, yeah, what was that? Okay, I, don't, so, I still don't totally follow. Okay, so he he said homosexuality is not a crime, flat out. He follows that up with what seems like him imitating a dialogue or a rhetorical question. So he says homosexuality is not a crime. And then he says, but homosexuality is a sin? kind of like saying, okay, what a Catholic would say back to him in dialogue. In response to that rhetorical question, he then says, but first let us distinguish between sin and crime. Lack of charity toward one's neighbor is also a sin. So so some people took this headline as Pope Francis says homosexuality is a sin. And this is significant because like the church teaches that being gay is not a sin, right? Yeah. But it, it, that homosexual acts are. So some of the people, some headlines kind of ran with this as like a Pope Francis says being gay is a sin, but not a crime. Yeah. And and Vatican News has kind of affirmed the interpretation of the Pope's remarks as, you know, performing a dialogue and not saying homosexuality is a sin and saying that um, 
quote, as he often does in his preaching or interviews, the Pope imagined a dialogue between two people. So the Pope, That's the Pope was not do that a lot. Yeah. saying in his own voice, homosexuality is a sin. Because gotcha. that is not actually what the catechism teaches. No, and it, uh, and I don't want that to like take away from the larger yeah. message because the, mm-hmm. the the idea that you know Pope Francis calling for the decriminalization of homosexuality is significant because even in the last twenty years, it's very difficult to imagine the Vatican mm-hmm. being on board with a statement like that. Yeah. So that was that was one facet of the interview. The other one we wanted to get into were his comments on gun violence, and this is significant because the Associated Press, you know, uh, asking uh, in the context. Uh, the United States, where you know, this just this past weekend we had several shootings, including you know two mass ones in California that that hit headlines. What what did the Pope say about gun ownership? Yeah, so he really called out the the use of guns by civilians um, to defend themselves and it becoming habit in their life. So you know, you start out where you have this idea of self defense, which is something the Church recognizes as legitimate as defending your own safety, but then. He says that need to defend oneself lengthens and lengthens and becomes a habit. Instead of making an effort to help us live, we make the effort to help us kill. This is something that's a particular challenge to the United States, right? Um, Because as you said, we have a country with more guns than people and- we not to get it too deep into like the gun control debate, but we know that just the like sheer availability of guns might like obviously there are the big headlines from mass shootings, and those are like shocks to our system. Um, at least I hope they are still a little bit. But sort of the day-to-day gun violence really is driven by ready availability of guns that's just we're awash with in this country. So like deaths by suicide, like interfamily killing, like shootings where only one to two people die. Like these are the majority of, of crimes and gun violence that's committed in this country. And that is a direct result of this obsession with like this fantasy of defending oneself and so accumulating all of these guns. Yeah. One thing that I thought was really poignant that the Pope said is at one point he says, quote, please, let's say something that will stop this, which kind of speaks to the despair I think a lot of Americans feel of having to have this conversation again and again. (laughs) And so for the Pope to tap into that desperation, I just it made me feel like he is starting to feel the desperation we have in this country in the face of one mass shooting after another. Now, that was those were just a couple points that the Pope made in this interview. There's a whole bunch. And we've, of course, got wall-to-wall coverage at americamagazine.org on Inside the Vatican. So uh, please don't be shy. Go go read the rest of it. It's, it's really fascinating anytime the Pope talks about some of these big issues. So would encourage you to go check that out. Outside of this interview, the Pope had uh, other comments that are pretty related to just like things that happened in the church over the weekend that caused quite a stir. Yes. So on January 20th, talking to uh, a group of liturgical directors, Pope Francis called lengthy abstract homilies a disaster for the church and told homilists that they really need to keep their homilies limited to 10 minutes. Obviously, I I agree with Francis on a lot of things, but I really don't think length of the homily is the problem. This is my hot Mm, take, right? I think people don't like bad homilies. I don't think people like boring homilies. How long it is, like if it's a good homily, you're not actually watching the clock and you're not thinking like, man, this is going on for a long time. Preaching is really hard and preaching succinctly is even harder. And so I think we we ask a lot of priests um, and to try and like come up with something that's inspiring and educational and breaks open the readings all in 10 minutes. That's a that's a really difficult thing to do. And I'm not sure that just saying make it shorter is going to fix it. Yeah, I would also say I most of the homilies I hear are not over 10 minutes. 
So, but no, I, I think most <laughs> priests know that like they've got to finish mass in, in an hour. Yeah. Otherwise, people are going to riot. Like yeah. you get a couple times a year where you can go longer than that. Otherwise, yeah. people are really frustrated. So you got to stay within a certain time limit on the homily. Yeah. No. Okay. So I, I agree that you know just because your homily is under ten minutes does not make it a good homily. And the Pope did say he gave more constructive advice as opposed to what not to do. He did say always include quote a thought, a feeling, an image that the people may bring something home with them, which I, I think that is good advice. And I think I think it should be one <laughs> thought, image, or feeling. I I know my Jesuit colleagues joke that they learn in their formation, like, all right, your homily should have three points, but three points is too many, just one. <laughs> um, and then it was interesting when we, we talked about this with our colleagues here in America, some of whom are parents, and they very much took the side that, like, I don't care how good it is, it needs to be under 10 minutes, because I have teenagers who are hanging on to the church by a thread, <laughs> and anything longer than that, they're they're like, why am I wasting my time? I just don't know. Like, not to get into the all of the problems with preaching, but, like, in what other context do you just, like, sit and stare at someone talking at you for any length of time? Where you're not either, you're not taking notes, you're not on your computer, you're not on your phone. Like that just doesn't really exist anymore. And I think it, w without any visual aid, right? Mm -hmm. It's just pure like lecture. All right. So Zach's calling for PowerPoints in church. Maybe. <laughs> I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to endorse that entirely, but like I, the length is not the problem. Mm. If we, if we think that the length of homilies is the problem, we're missing the boat, basically, I think, on some pretty significant preaching reforms that need to happen. We're obsessed with this idea that mass has to be under an hour. Liturgy has to be a certain way. It has to be all things to me. Um, I, may, I don't know. This is my, maybe my rad trad coming out, but like, I don't know. It's okay to be bored for a little bit, too. Yeah. Let so your mind all... wander in prayer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Okay. Hopefully. All right. We will link to that so you can give your own commentary on how you think homilies should look. And now stick around for our conversation with Susanna Black-Roberts. Joining us from Queens is Susanna Black-Roberts. Susanna is a senior editor at Plow Quarterly and a editor at Mere Orthodoxy and the co-host of the Plowcast podcast. Welcome to Jesuitical, Susanna. So glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Um, we've been talking the past couple weeks about sort of the intersection of religion and politics. So I uh, actually knew that you were uh, definitely someone we needed to get on the pod <laughs> to talk about this. So appreciate you taking the time. I'm very happy to. We want to get some definitions first because conversations around integralism and post-liberalism can get really heady. So first, let's let's start with liberalism. What is this philosophical system and what does it imagine the human person to be? Okay, so liberalism is not sort of the way that we think of it in the U.S., which is sort of being on the left or being a Democrat or something like that, but has more to do with what you might call libertarianism or classical liberalism. So basically a political philosophy that originates in, you know, probably 17th-ish century, really ramping up in the 18th century, where basically the human person is imagined to be a morally autonomous individual agent. Kind of the way that you think of a, a human is that 
He's not dependent on anyone. He's sort of making individual choices to maximize his own sort of personal life plan. And th- and this is a shift from what? This is a shift from sort of the, the classical and Christian sort of political tradition had sort of started out with, well, with Plato and, and Aristotle, but also with the Hebrew Bible, obviously. And in that tradition, man is thought to be a political animal. And to be a political animal means to be an animal that who is um, naturally sociable. And you're born into obligations that you don't necessarily choose. In the Christian vision, you're born into the obligation to honor your parents. You're born into um, innumerable benefits. You're, you know, you're given life by God, first of all. So there's this emphasis on uh, the givenness of a lot of our obligations and the givenness, the, the gifts by which we live, as opposed to a, an emphasis on our independent um, choices that and, and the idea that we don't have any obligations other than those that we voluntarily enter into. Like, I think one way of thinking about this is like different ways, like an advice columnist would like uh, write about uh, someone writing in about like a family dispute or a neighborly dispute. I imagine like most people are sort of trained in this liberalism without even thinking where it's like, oh, well, it's your life. You got to do what's best for yeah, you. Is that right? friend toxic? Get rid of yeah. them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, like you can't, you know, you try with your family, but ultimately like you've got one life, you got to live it, follow your passion. Yeah, yeah like, it's a very, it, it, it can lead to very YOLO kind of um, Thelma and Louise approaches to life. Um, you know, the main sort of thing that you're not allowed to do is violate someone else's consent. So consent becomes kind of the one metric by which you judge whether or not you should do something. So should you, you know, do heroin? Well, do do you want to do heroin? Do you, are you doing it voluntarily? Should you go into prostitution to make, to make some money? Well, do you want, is somebody else coercing you? If not, there's nothing about prostitution itself. There's nothing about sex that makes it such that you shouldn't do it. Um, as long as you're choosing to do it, you're not violating anyone else's choice. You know, you're good to go. One sort of test case to think about this um, really carefully is actually the question of suicide. Um, reductio liberal position on suicide is that if you choose to kill yourself, you're the only one you're hurting um, and you have no obligation to keep living. Obviously, in my view, it's it's not true to the nature of human, human relationships because obviously you are hurting other people. There's a kind of invisibility to the reality of relationships as things that actually matter um, in a lot of liberal political philosophy, I think, and liberal ethical philosophy. But then the main issue there is that you don't own yourself. Like we, we are not self-owners. We do not have the right to self-government. We do not have the right to sell ourselves in, you know, in, in prostitution. We don't have the right to hurt ourselves, um, you know, and we don't have the right to kill ourselves because we are not our own. Um, we've been given our lives. We've been given our lives for a purpose, and discharging that purpose um, with love and grace towards other people and gratitude towards towards God and other people um, is what we're here for. Rather than, you know, we're just here, and what we're here for is what we decide to be here for, and we can choose to check out if we would like to. I'm glad you brought up that example because one thing I've often heard is that liberal systems like the U.S. government either you know, smuggled in Christian values or relied on Christian values that they didn't necessarily nurture. And so that we've kind of reached a point in history, whereas Christianity declines in the United States, we're seeing liberalism laid bare without without uh, the bumpers that Christianity 
provided for it or for the values underpinnings that it provided. Would you agree with that? Or how would you describe the influence on Christianity and how that might be changing over time? Yeah, I do think that, you know, liberalism has been running on Christian fumes for a long time. And so things that you know, even I would say 15 years ago were extremely non-controversial about like what a human person was and what human people owe to themselves, especially as well as to each other. I, I hate to be, I'm not really temperamentally a doomer, um, you know, and I get irritated with doomerism, but at the same time, like with MAID in Canada. And- yeah, that's the um, the expansion of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide to a much larger population than was initially thought to be um, in the cards for that law. Which I sort of assume is going to come to the U.S. at some point because there's not really anything philosophically preventing it. Um, it's it's It makes total sense with a kind of purely liberal, um, essentially consumeristic vision of what your life should be and what and what a human life is. And a lot of that was really, I think we're, we're seeing now because the fumes of Christianity are running out. I'm curious though, because I think a lot of people listening will, will hear that and be like, I think of America as like a place influenced by like Christian nationalism. And these people would probably be opposed to that. Or these people are actually restricting this purely to economics. Like actually there's plenty of Christians that are totally all in on sort of this like liberal idea of economics, libertarian specifically, like sort of free market. You are the only restrictions you should have on yourself are are really none, right? Like it's consent. What I want to do within the bounds of not violating someone else's. How, how do those two ideologies square in this country, in your view? Uh, they kind of don't. So the Christian libertarians who tend to be sort of Reaganites and um, fusionists who were committed to a, a liberal sort of capitalism, um, you know, very anti-Cold War. And the Christian nationalists who tend to be anti-capitalist, um, like, aren't, aren't really on the same page with economics. They both do tend to be very much on the same page with things like assisted suicide. Like, no Christian nationalist and no National Review, you know, Catholic is going to be okay with assisted suicide. But I don't think that either Christian nationalists or National Review Catholics are really in charge of culture particularly. Can we can we define Christian nationalists? Sure. I would say there are very very bad versions and then there are versions which kind of come close to pretty close to what I believe. Um although I wouldn't really call myself one. The the bad version can be this sort of vision of like there's an America where the the people who really count are the you know largely white Protestant nor- good normal red-blooded people and they're the ones who um should be who really should have political power as against the kind of cultural elite you know cosmopolitan drinking journalists in midtown or in queens for that matter and that vision of a kind of real american people which does tend to be quite racialized I, you know, I'm not a fan of, there are versions of that that are genuinely not racialized, where it's genuinely kind of, um, you know, it is a, a, just a vision of a Christian political order that I think is a, a lot less dangerous and which I, with which some of which I would agree. I think this is a good place to sort of transition the, the conversation. Um, so we've defined sort of liberalism in, in what it means for this country. You, you've self-described as like a, a Christian post-liberal, mm-hmm. um, as someone who might be on board with like some versions of like a, a quote unquote Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. What does that start to look like? Or what are the versions that you think are okay and not 
toxic or racist or well i wouldn't i would probably not call myself a christian nationalist because i'm not a nationalist um i don't i don't think that the nation state is a particularly good model for thinking about what america is um and i think that our primary obligation in politics is to you know obviously have laws that are just and that reflect the natural law but also to just be really attentive to the places and people that god's put us with and and um among and if we have any kind of political power including you know in a democracy the power of being a citizen to just sort of like make sure that we are helping whatever this polity is that we've woken up in um and are a member of to be its most true self and i think america is something more like a commonwealth is the the word that i would say is more appropriate than nation state because we we are multinational we're multinational in the sense that we're multiethnic and that's just part of what America is. We have more than one kind of ethnos or people group who are truly Americans who, who live here. And that's been true of many polities um, throughout time, like the Austro-Hungarian Empire was one of those. You know, Rome was like that. There are also polities that are mono-ethnic and they're more likely to be able to be sort of nation states in the classic sense. But that's not what America is. So how in a religiously and ethnically diverse commonwealth or country like the United States how do we come to a shared understanding of the good? <laughs> um, well, this kind of gets to a, a phrase that's been that's often bandied about a lot in Christian political and post-liberal, especially political spaces, which is the common good. So a common good is unlike a private a private good is like something like um a cosmopolitan. It, all right, that's you guys are drinking cosmopolitans, just to be clear. I'm not sure if people can see this. Like it's a podcast, so... Oh, yeah. We make very clear what we're drinking. Okay, all right. Show, so they'll see. You guys are each drinking a Cosmopolitan. I'm not because I'm not there because I have a cold. I, if I didn't have a cold, I would be there with you guys. Um, I'm drinking a La Coulomb coffee draft mocha latte thing in a... It's like a nitrous-infused milk cold brew thing. Um, these are all wonderful. They're private goods because, like, you can go off and drink your Cosmopolitan in a corner and enjoy it and... I can go off and drink my frothy mocha thing in the corner and enjoy it. If I take my cosmopolitan to the corner and I'm probably crying about something. Yeah, I know. Well, you, okay, so you're probably not enjoying it, but you you know, <laughs> you, you might be like, I don't know, sort of like uh, at least feeling a little bit better than you would without the cosmopolitan. I don't know, or well, worse, it's a depressive, so maybe don't do that. Yes. Um <laughs> but the point is um the, it's characteristic of private goods that like you if I have some you don't have it. Um, so if there were only two cosmopolitans and there were three of us, like we couldn't all have one, like you take it away and then you can enjoy it by yourself. And it's also not shareable. Um, a common good is the thing is the kind of thing where you can't have it by yourself. So like the common good of this conversation or the common good of being at a birthday party, as opposed to having a piece of the birthday cake, the political common good is basically the experience of living in a polity in a, in some kind of, you know, political community with other people and enjoying living with each other justly under just laws and in a kind of peaceful friendship and fruitful, productive, um, you know, bustling, <laughs> sort of thriving community. I think that that can exist um, between Christians and non-Christians quite easily. Um, but it's it can get difficult if people have radically different ideas of what um, what human beings are or what justice is. It's difficult to live in a country where, you know, you disagree, you know, what 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 an embryo is. Like, is this a human being or is this not? I want to clarify something. So for, for a post-liberal, is 
who wants to pursue this common good? Is it the structures of a polity like the United States that are incompatible with that pursuit, or yeah. is it the values and ethos? So if if you're if I you're a post liberal, yeah. like are you working to change like how we vote and the systems of government, or just changing hearts and minds to be post liberal? Or, or like is like the the are like the founding documents we have sort of yeah. limiting to even achieving this. I'm not going in for like a lot of um, historical tinkering because we don't have the ability to do that. So you kind of have to start with where you are. Um, you are in a I, Jesuit podcast. I, I Okay. I, Jesuits well, have that ability. I know, but not, the, not time. the time travel version. Like obviously the like, obviously the like conspiratorial, like guiding history as it unfolds version. Y'all like <laughs> Jesuits have that down pat, um, but not the time travel version that I know of. We're although, working on it. You'll, We're working yeah. on it. Yeah. So I guess um, w- one sort of short answer is that, like, I think that, like, post-liberalism is a more accurate description of what human humans are in their political lives together. Um, so it's not kind of aspirational. It's not like I want us to become a post-liberal country. I think that in as much as we are a political community with each other and that's going well, which I think, you know, it, it, a lot of it is going well. Um we are living out post-liberalism because we're living out pursuing the common good with each other, governing ourselves according to laws that are in line with natural law as opposed to just in line with, you know, what we the majority votes on to be law, which may or may not be just. As much as I love to think about the restoration of the Holy Roman Empire, um, that's kind of a hobbyist of me. <laughs> it's, you know, I think it would actually probably be fairly disastrous if anyone actually tried to do that, although it would be kind of fun. That I mean, that's where I get stuck, really, is this idea, like, power is, like, a big thing I worry about, and especially, like, state power and the the idea that um, the church would wield any more than it already does. It does feel like there are a lot of people online that are into this idea that goes under the umbrella of integralism, and I'll try to define that, where you have sort of like an ordered Christian state where the church is like sort of like both in charge of temporal things and spiritual things. You know, I just look at human history and I go, that was that's a pretty bad idea. Anytime that's ever happened, there's a comedian that says like, oh, Catholics, you might know us as the good guys from exorcism movies or as the bad guys from human history, <laughs> which I think there's a reason that that hits home. Because uh, anytime we've tried to sort of intermix these two things, mm-hmm. it's been um, I think not totally destructive for the the life of the church, mm-hmm. but I would say at least a little destructive mm-hmm. to say the least. Well, I mean, the vision of of integralism, as I understand it, um, the place where it would cross over with something like what I would advocate is that, like, yes, ideally the the magistrate, like the people who are in charge of making laws and so on. It's not that they're subservient to the church because the church is a separate institution, but they're getting their ethics from natural law from, you know, what's really good. And they're being taught by the tradition of the church um, because sometimes it's hard for us to figure out natural law ethics just on our own steam. Um, And so it's not that the church has taken over the state in the integralist vision. It's that the magistrates are being appropriately taught um, by the church. So an example of that in, in our history would be Martin Luther King is, you know, he's a preacher um, he's he's not a magistrate. He's not a, a lawyer. He's not a, a a judge or a a congress member or something. Um, he is morally instructing the polity as to you know how to make laws that are more in keeping with natural law. Like you know Jim Crow laws are not in keeping with natural law. They're unjust. And he in his letter from the Birmingham jail and in a lot of other 
you know, documents, but he was definitely influenced by St. Thomas. As a pastor, he is calling sort of the democratic citizenry as, as the kinds of rulers that, that we are of a democratic state. And also he's calling judges and um, members of Congress to pass laws that are in keeping with natural law. That is an integralist vision. Like that, that is an example of um, integralism working the way it should, in my opinion. That's interesting because I think people would look at that and be like, that's an example of moral persuasion yeah. working in a liberal democratic state. And and I think when people hear integralism, they 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 think coercion, like a state that's forcing Christian ethics onto non-Christians. They look at like rosaries on January 6th. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> but, but the state, think about if, if you think about like what the federal government did, um, that was the state forcing Christian ethics onto people who weren't, who didn't want to live according to Christian ethics. Like abolishing Jim Crow laws was the state forcing Christian ethics onto people who did not want to live according to Christian ethics. I think what people usually do is they say, okay, I'm influenced by this Christian argument, but I'm going to go back to the source text of the Constitution and use that as the basis for my argument, not any religious doctrine. You know, Dr. King did not, in fact, you know, go back to the Constitution, particularly as like he was he was making moral claims um, that were based in Christian ethics and in natural law ethics. And that's that's kind of what you have to do. There, There isn't a code of ethics in the Constitution. No, but maybe what I'm trying to say is that there's an appeal to like American civil religion, mm-hmm. which which we all share in our multi like ethnic and religious state, that that's the thing you can appeal to in, in, in a courtroom or in legislative floor when you're making arguments and that people are generally not OK if you like reference back to religious doctrine about what's what's a just law. I mean- one of the things that post-liberalism points out is that, again, it's not just to legislate anything except morality, essentially. Like, if something is morally indifferent, you know, if it's like a question of, do I eat vanilla or strawberry ice cream? It's not just to make a law about that, because that's not an ethical question. That's not a moral question. So something with moral content is really the only thing that it's just to legislate. And we're just not taught that by the Constitution or the Declaration. Like the content of our law, what a human being is, whether or not it's just to kill a human being, like that's not taught by the Declaration or the Constitution. That that's taught by, you know, an, an ethical by a natural law ethical tradition, um, by a tradition that I think a lot of the founding fathers didn't realize that they were embedded in and so didn't necessarily, other than James Wilson, shout out to James Wilson, um, you know, didn't fully understand um, that they were importing. Um, But basically, there's just not enough there. There's not enough in the proceduralist contract of the Constitution um, that can tell you, like, what's justice? What's justice? What's a human being? Like, is it fair to hold someone accountable for something that they are powerless to affect? Is it okay to kill yourself? Is it okay to kill someone else? Like, th- those aren't, th- that's not content that's covered in those documents. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before, kind of like waxing political about the return of the <laughs> Holy Roman Empire, but to make it more in the moment and practical. So, what does it mean for um, a post liberal? individual Christian or Christian community church to function in the uh, contemporary United States? What should they be? What are they advocating for? What are what are they doing besides coming on podcasts and talking about? <laughs> I mean, a lot of what a lot of what Christian post liberals are doing is coming on podcasts, to be fair. <laughs> I mean, yeah. That's lot, kind of, yeah. A lot of LARPing. That's what we do. Yeah. That's what we do. <laughs> like step one is try to become a just person and a holy person and um, to live, you know, 
as a, a self-ruler, someone who's ruling themselves towards love and towards uh, sort of what God wants you to do with your life and be a part of your church, you guys should be telling me to convert to Catholicism. That's coming. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> um, step two, I guess, you know, you could say advocate for laws that are in accordance with um, with the natural law. And I think Catholic social teaching is a really, really good benchmark for thinking through how um, natural law kind of impacts our lives together as as people living not just as individuals, but in a community and in a political community. It, it's sort of like be a good person, advocate for just laws, try to um, help people who tend to be less powerful and therefore more easily overlooked um, in a system that where if you are powerful and loud people, you know, you can make people not overlook you. But if you're not powerful and quiet, then you kind of get squashed a lot. One of the things I appreciate that we're doing is sort of complicating people's ideas of some of these like big heady ideas and what these monikers often mean for people. W one thing I, if we had another hour, I would want to probe more is like natural law. Um, cause we, I don't think we really ever like got around to defining that mm -hmm. or getting into that a little bit. Oh, I, we could do that really quick though. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> natural law is, you know, basically God's wisdom, God's reason implanted in our natures. So like the, you know, God's wisdom is, you know, what, what's good and bad, what, what makes humans thrive, what, essentially love. You know, love is obviously the, the core of this. And when he makes us, he implants that in our natures. And so we have consciences and we can sort of, through conscience and reason, discern things like, is it okay to murder someone else? There is what C.S. Lewis referred to as the Tao, a kind of set of universal human um, understandings of what's good and right in the world um, and how we should treat each other. And the content of natural law can sort of be Sammy deduced from that, although it's really hard. You just have to read Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> you have to read. You have to read Saint Thomas, or you could just read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, which is a lot shorter. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, Susanna. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Uh, we could probably do another hour of this, but um, we have one final question for you. Um, sure. When are you converting? <laughs> no, kidding, kidding, kidding. You brought it up. Um, the real final question is: If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not. Fictional or real, liberal or post-liberal, who would it be and why? Oh, man, Ugh, this is going to be so boring. But C.S. Lewis, because I love him and because I'm a, basically a normie and um, because I wasn't raised Christian at all, but reading the Narnia books and then the apologetics later when I was like 15 or so really is what God used to bring me to Christ um, or one of the things. And so I'll go with Lewis. All right. What's the first book you recommend to someone who has not read any C.S. Lewis? Well, A, you have to read the Narnia. This is whatever. It's not going to be just one. Sorry. You have to read the Narnia books. And then you have to read Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography. And then you probably have to read the Space Trilogy and then read Mere Christianity and then read Abolition of Man. Okay. I always like to remind people. We have our syllabus. I always like to remind people because people forget that Anthony Hopkins once portrayed C.S. Lewis. He did. Um, great well, film. Opposite Deborah Winger. It was wonderful. Yeah, great film. Shadowlands. Right. So if you don't want to read, you can just see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Susanna, where can people find your work? Go to plow.com to see the magazine that I help edit, which is a wonderful magazine run by a bunch of weird Anabaptists um, <laughs> who are extremely Catholic friendly. So don't be scared of them. You can also find me on Twitter at Susania, S-U-Z-A-N-I-A. And um, my husband and I have a Substack, which we just started, called 
the Argosy, which I think you can probably find if you Google, if you, it's like argosy.substack.com or something like that, if you want to sign up. Awesome. We'll put them all in our show notes too. Thanks. So people can find <laughs> them. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Susanna. Thanks so much for having me. Come on. All right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of the show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, Quick one this week. uh, Just want to give a huge thank you to uh, one new patron that signed up on patreon.com slash America Media to support the show. Thanks, Bernadette Haig, for signing up. Uh, We've been posting our scripture reflections this past couple weeks. Ashley and I have been writing them on occasion for America. Uh, If you're a subscriber to America, you get these daily, so you can also get at them that way. But a really big way to support the show is at patreon.com slash America Media. So thanks to all our Patreon supporters. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. So this week, I wanted to talk about those passages in scripture that you just don't like, you'd rather ignore, pretend it wasn't there, (laughs) or you don't really want to let it challenge you. So for me this week, the the daily readings for for Tuesday. It was a passage from Mark's gospel where Jesus is with a crowd teaching and someone comes in and tells them, hey, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. And Jesus is like, who are my mother and brother? <laughs> like, you people in Be front gone. of me are. <laughs> yeah. I've got other things to do. Like, I've I've always struggled with the kind of dismissive of family verses that come from Jesus because I'm someone who really values family and I feel like I live in a culture where people aren't encouraged to take their obligations to their family seriously. And so I'm just like, oh, that's not what Jesus really meant. I can just ignore it. Um, And this week, so you mentioned scripture reflections. Uh, Our colleague Tim Reedy had a reflection on this this passage where he said he had the same uh, trouble with with the kind of seemingly anti-family aspect of Jesus's teaching. Um, but then he took the perspective of the crowd and the idea that Jesus was, and it wasn't that he was dismissing his family. He was being engaged and present and encountering the people in front of him because, you know, he wanted to share God's good news with those specific people. They were there. Um, and so he didn't want to break off that encounter. And I think that's actually kind of a good metaphor for what to do with difficult passages. Like you're you're having an encounter with scripture. And so if it's difficult, do you just like turn away and ignore it? Or do you do you try to stay present to it and see what happens from there? Yeah. And I, you know, this is one of them, but I'm sure people have a bunch they could maybe Wives rattle submit off. to your husband. Yeah. That they, the thing I always stay with, like I want to stay away from is like the ones that like lend themselves to super like fundamentalist interpretations or something like that because I, it's not how I understand God or how God works in the world. But what we were getting at behind this is like, what's holding us back from this, right? Like, do are we afraid of what like Jesus says here? Are we afraid of what God says in some of these things? Um, and is that fear holding us back from as you said, like being present to or having an encounter with scripture, right? Like, mm-hmm. is there another, is there a deeper meaning we can get from something or a 
I've definitely been guilty of letting that fear of certain Bible passages like stop me from encountering. And like some people have legitimate reasons to be sort of like afraid of these Bible passages and like Catholics are usually pretty good at this, but you don't need to let like your entire faith hinge upon like one interpretation of scripture that you heard one time that's been super toxic. Like if you need to like take a break from that, go ahead. But I think you have to discern what's the thing that's motivating you there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it fear or is it a genuine concern about, you know, your your relationship with God and how this might affect it? So yeah. So listeners, I encourage you if if there is a passage that you've always struggled with and you feel like you're in the place to do so, you know, revisit it. Just be open to it, be present to it, and and see what God might be trying to say to you through those harder verses. And with that, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Bye.